It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Somebody once said, marriage, the roots are deep, the covenant is solid, love is sweet, life is hard, and God is good. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Talk to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com or our social media channels. Download some after-episode extras, such as our thorough Secure Rewind show notes and our bonus Bible study questions available on our individual episode pages. And look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what is the subject matter for today? Well, Rick, our question is... I don't think I love my spouse anymore. What now? Our theme text is found in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's even hard to say the title. I don't think I love my spouse anymore. What now? But it's an important subject that needs to be talked about. So, and they lived happily ever after. While this fairy tale ending makes us all feel warm and fuzzy, it doesn't help us prepare for reality. The fact is, marriage is hard. Think about why. Two people make a promise to one another before God to, for the rest of their lives, be completely faithful to each other. Theoretically, we think this is not unreasonable because when we marry, the bonds of love are powerful. Then life happens. Stress, jobs, children, changes, finances, likes, dislikes, opinions, moods, all of the human things that life is made of show themselves. And you wake up one day and that bond of love that once looked impervious has faded into the shadows of everyday experience. Now, Folks, look, this does not happen to everyone, but it happens to too many of us. So, coming up in today's podcast, marriage can be hard. Sometimes it can seem impossible. How do you cope, and can you save it? In our first two segments, we'll look at what marriage really is and examine how you can actually love your spouse when you don't feel like you love them anymore. This alone can be life-changing. What do you do when you find out your spouse has a part of them that's dark or unkind? In segments three and four, we address this huge challenge and uncover the Christian principles necessary to cope and keep us from resigning and giving up. And then how do we learn to accept the challenges of marriage, of marriage as a tool to be faithful to God? Stay with us for segment five to find out how that part works. So Jonathan, this is a tough subject. It is, and it was hard for me to read that question. <laughs> I don't think I love my spouse anymore. Oh, that, yeah. that's heartbreaking to even say those words. Yeah, and you know, and and look, you and I are both very, very blessed to be in in marriages that that work. Uh, we, Amen. You and I, I can speak for both of us. I just watching you, I know how much you love Jewel and how much she loves you. And you know, for us, it's the same. Trish and I, we're we're blessed. 
And But at the same time, you realize that it's not that way in a lot of circumstances. So what do you do? So what we want to do is set the groundwork. Let's back up before we get into the problems and the issues. Let's look at the first marriage proclamation. This is where we see the intention of God for his human family, God's design. And it's a relationship of commitment. So let's go to Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, but we're going to break it up into pieces. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And every whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And Rick, in verse 20, the noticeable absence of the woman revealed the emptiness man had without her. You know, loneliness is a deep ache that makes us miserable. <laughs> it, it is, and, and I think that's why God did it the way he did it. He wanted to give Adam the sense of, here you are, you have this dominion before you, but you are by yourself. And to realize you're by yourself makes you really embrace not being by yourself when God opens that door. So Continuing we, in verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now in verses 21 and 22, God's creation of woman from man gives a sense of equality and companionship. I like that, Rick. Yeah. It's not often thought about that way, is it? Right. It, it does. Equality and companionship, you know, and, and that's the way things started. What about points from verse 22? Well, God presents Eve to Adam to be named as his own companion and helper. And that word helper, what did God mean when he told Adam she would be his helper? You know, a lot of times we look at that and say, you, you, you imagine the, the, the tradesperson, you know, who's, who's the plumber or the electrician, and they've got their helper the, who goes to get the wrench or goes to bring the wood or brings the, 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 the cable over or, you know, well, there's my helper. Uh, that, that has nothing to do with helper here. Helper literally means one who helps, but certainly not one who is in a lesser position. How do we know that? Because in Psalm 33:20, here's how the word help is used. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So if you're going to call God your helper, when you call your spouse your helper, you're not saying, oh, they're a gopher. What you're no, saying you're is they are significant to the contributions of your life, because that's the way we see God. All right. Well, continuing in Genesis 2, verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called, whoa, man. Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> well, that, that was Adam's first reaction <laughs> oh, okay. when he saw Eve, actually. <laughs> and that only works in the English language, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it actually says she will be called woman. Sorry about that. No, you're not. <laughs> because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in verse 23, at last, 
bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, Adam's deep companionship desires now fulfilled. You know, and, and, I, and I love the way it says it, at last, okay, now, this is now bone of my bones. In other words, I've had this companionship with these animals, and that's been wonderful, but now, at last, this is from me, with me, like me. And there is something incredibly special about that. And this is how God built the context of the first marriage, what, what, what we're supposed to be looking for. And another important point in verse 24, therefore a man leaves his home and clings, implies a lifelong devotion. Right. The, the idea of clinging to your spouse really means to be very, very, very much attached leave your home and cling. So it's therefore, it's saying, looking at this original marriage, obviously they didn't leave their home because uh, Eden was their home, but it's saying, looking at it, you know, in retrospect saying, this is why, the way God set this up is why a man leaves his home and clings to his wife. And continuing in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So they became one flesh, inseparable and united in every way. Okay, so very, very powerful. So this is the context of the first marriage, the the first commitment. So what do we do when we see trouble? Jonathan, we're going to tell a story. Um, This is a true story. A Christian woman contacted me through Christian Questions, and she and I communicated for many, many, many months about her challenges in her marriage. Now, her husband is not a devout Christian as she is, and they've had a lot of issues. And so I asked her to write her story down, and I asked her if we could tell her story, because her efforts to make it work in spite of incredible odds are utterly inspiring to me. So we're going to be listening to the story. The voice that's reading the story is Julie's voice. This is not Julie's story, make no mistake. Okay, but she consented to read the story for us to give us a sense of what happened with this, this Christian woman who, again, I know through Christian questions, and we have uh, been in touch for quite some time now, talking about and working through and fellowshipping about how to make that marriage as good as she possibly can. So this kind of puts things in, in perspective to get things started. When I was getting married, he made me feel loved, safe, and special. He appreciated me for being independent with a strong faith and that I was close to my family. I was so thrilled with being able to have a husband and a family of my own. I put him first above all. Very soon after our wedding, things started to change. He began to criticize me, my family, my friends, and others around us. The criticism of me was little by little at first, but built slowly to more and more. My cooking, the way I look, the way I cleaned, parked the car, cleaned the car, and if I didn't put the lawn away fast enough by the time he came home, these were all less than acceptable to him. I was a stay-at-home mom and often spent the day frantically trying to have everything in place by the time he got home, but to no avail. Either something wasn't clean enough, dinner wasn't good enough, or I asked a question I should have known the answer to. Now, you know, a lot of, a lot of us listening to that can have all kinds of reactions like, you know, this is a mistake. This is a big situation. This, you know, what are you doing here? And you know, you, you, how come you didn't notice and see all those things before? Well, she didn't. And the, the, the fact is, a lot of us don't. And we end up in circumstances that are just plain old hard. 
But the so, commitment was made, wasn't it? Ray? The commitment was made. She um, is, is is a Christian, and she's like, okay, I've got to figure this out. And this story shows how she works against very, very, very serious odds. So as we look, we've introduced the story, and you've already got some of the conflict that's that's been made plain with the backdrop of the uh, the God's design, the relationship of commitment. So Jonathan, what we want to focus on throughout this podcast is challenging our challenges. What's our first point to do that? Marriage was unequivocally designed to be the core of humanity's foundation. When troubles arise with this foundation, always remember its meaning and value. We have to always, always, always think about the meaning and the value of the commitment that we have made so that as we go through our experiences, we are prepared for whatever might come. So, look, the fundamentals of marriage are not just obvious, but appealing. We just need to keep them firmly in place. Sometimes life changes us. It is possible. Is it possible to love your spouse even if you no longer love your spouse? Did you know we have one-page companion Bible studies for our most recent podcast episodes? Listen to the episode, follow along with our CQ Rewind show notes, and for your own bite-sized Bible study or group study, check out the Bible study questions content. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Bible study in the main menu. Have some study time and then contact us with any additional questions or comments. Now let's continue the conversation. Jonathan, your question is an incredibly relevant question that is almost never asked. The answer, can you love your spouse even if you no longer love your spouse? The answer is a resounding yes. For Christians, this answer could potentially save many troubled marriages. It unlocks secrets to life, support, and communication that most people never have the wherewithal to understand or apply. So we're going to look at how can you love your spouse when you don't feel like you love your spouse anymore? What does that actually mean? We're going to go through that here in this segment because there's two basic kinds of love that scripturally apply to marriage. We're going to see it's very possible to have one kind of love without the other kind of love. So let's get started with this, Jonathan. What is this first kind of love that we're talking about? Well, this first kind of love is a strong marriage is built upon mutual respect. Okay, a strong marriage is built upon mutual respect. This includes an ever-growing ability to take that which we tolerate and transform it into that which we embrace. Take that which we tolerate and transform it into that which we embrace. There are several words used for love in the New Testament, Jonathan. Just give us a little bit of an overview of some of the words that have to do with this first kind of love that we're talking about now. Well, this first kind of love, uh, philandros, uh, philos, dargos, and philotekinos, uh, I can't say them well, but they're all basically variations of the same word. And they mean the affection between spouses parents to children and children to parents, this level is the most basic and instinctive, right? Okay, so the kind of love we're talking about is the bonding love. I'm in it with you, you're in it with me, we are in it together. Philadelphia is drawn from the same word as all of these other words, okay? So 
This is an important kind of love because it's the kind that has the give and take, the we are in this together sense. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 uses this two different forms of this word uh, in, these, in, in, in this scripture. And we're reading from the New King James Version. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, and obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So it says they admonish the young women to love having this connected, affectionate love between spouses and to love having this connected, affectionate love for their children. Those are two slightly different words because one is spouse to spouse and the other is parent to child, child to parent. And it's important, Philadelphia is brother to brother. That's right. So, and it's a matter of, you know, you're working it together. I've got your back, you've got my back, we do this together. In marriage, it's the same thing. And there, there's a lot that we need to understand about how that works, okay? So the, the need to keep standards before us is plainly obvious. That's what the Titus scripture just told us. This scripture is not saying that things, these things were being omitted. It's not saying, well, you know, make sure you love. I mean, because they knew they were supposed to. It's not saying they were being omitted. It's saying that these things need to be central. So it's saying, basically, yeah, I know that this is here, but make sure you make it really, really important because family love is fulfilling. Absolutely. Family love is fulfilling, and that is the point. Okay, so it's a simple concept. Have that that give and take. I support you, you support me. And, and Jonathan, just very quickly, I know, again, I'm going to be using observations. I've known you for a long time. Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was, I was there with you when you got married. You were my best man. <laughs> yeah. So watched your relationship over all of these years. And I see this kind of love just pouring out of not just you, but your wife as well toward one another. And it's a wonderful example because you take care of each other. And it's such an important thing. And you and Trish are an amazing example uh, to this very core thing. Um, and you're an example, not only to our family, but to many people, how you work through and you help so many people and, and just seeing that bond of that support Trish is there to lift you up when you need help and give you insight or make you think of things in a different way that you're not thinking. And all of a sudden the light bulb goes on and I see you say, wow, what a great point. And then you move forward. You guys are an amazing team. Yeah. You know, and there'll be a a good example of that coming up in just a minute. But the, the point is, this is the kind of love that binds the two of you together. That's what we're talking about. So when we think about this kind of love, what, how does it fit with challenging our challenges? This I've got your back affection between spouses builds deep bonds of trust and loyalty. If it wanes, we usually begin to question every part of our marriage. And Rick, um, protection of one another is important. Disappointment happens when you have issues with your spouse. Don't publicize them, protect their mistakes. If not, trust will be lost. Remember, we all make mistakes. And to be able to, and the way, what you said, to protect your spouse if they do make a mistake is such a big deal. Not to advertise it, look what she did, but to say, I've got you. You make a mistake, it's like we made a mistake, we're going to take care of it together. It's such incredible power. Now, here's the problem. This gets lost 
in those marriages where you feel like I don't love my husband anymore or I don't like mm. love my wife anymore. True. This is the thing that gets lost. That protectiveness now becomes defensiveness, and that's what we want to talk about. So let's go back to our story from this Christian woman who shared her experiences, thankfully, uh, with me over a long period of time and, and, and consented to write it down so we could benefit from her struggles. And um, the voice you're going to hear is Julie. She is, works with us at Christian Questions. It is not her story, but she is simply narrating it for us, giving us a sense of what this Christian woman went through. So this next soundbite we're going to call a wake-up call, because remember she was saying soon after they got married, things seemed to turn south, and it was very, very difficult. Six years after our son was born, I became physically sick with an autoimmune disease that seemingly came out of nowhere and put me in the hospital. That was a real wake-up call for me. I was putting every ounce of my being into trying to make my husband happy, but nothing worked. I wasn't putting God first. By God's grace, I received this nudge to realize I needed to get my priorities straight. My husband didn't change, but now I was aware that I needed to continually seek God and righteousness above all. I was always praying and attending church and doing what I thought was my best to serve God, especially by trying to please my husband, but I let his opinion or judgment of me become more valuable than God. And that last phrase, I let his opinion or judgment of me become more valuable than that of God, that says volumes as to what happens. Because remember, the marriage covenant is a covenant we make before God. It is sacred because it's before God. God always does come first in our lives. And all of our earthly relationships are better when we put God first. And this sickness, Rick, really helped her to come to that realization which could propel her in the right direction. Yeah, you know, sometimes, sometimes, almost every time, whenever we are going to change, we have to hit a bottom of some kind so we're forced to look up and look out and, and, and move forward. So, Jonathan, we have a great quote. We've got a few quotes coming up from Henry David Thoreau. And once you read this one, I just want to give you just a little bit of background on it. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with a song still in them. You know, I was in, in our house, the way, the way it works when I'm working on developing a Christian Questions podcast, I sit at a little desk on the side of our living room, and Trish usually sits on the, on the, on the love seat that's just, just a few feet away from me, and occasionally we'll chat about things, you know, and I'm telling her what I'm working on with this, and, and I'm, I'm actually, th- I'm, I'm searching in my mind for a theme. I just want a theme to run through the entire podcast. And she said, as I'm explaining it to her, she says, you know, you know this, this sounds like that, that, that quote about men living lives of quiet desperation. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, that's it. That's exactly <laughs> it. Because oh, nice. that's what this is. We are talking about the quiet desperation that so many of us are bearing and many times don't even talk about it to anyone because a it can be embarrassing uh, it can be feel threatening we can feel like we're going to be judged whatever the reason it's quiet desperation doesn't have to be so the first step here is to understand it so we can put it on the table in 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 an environment where we can actually say okay what can i learn how can i get better and this christian woman's response was i realized i put my husband above god and that was a backwards priority. So for all of us, God first. And remember, when God is first in your life, 
every other relationship can be better and more balanced. Always. So, when we find ourselves now questioning everything, like this Christian woman was, we need to truly focus on what we still have to work with. While this might seem like grasping at straws in the midst of hopelessness, let us remember that Jesus taught us the love that follows here. And now we're going to get to the other kind of love. That first kind of love was the bond that holds the two of you together, and I'm with you, and you're with me, and we're in this together. Here's the second kind of love, Jonathan. A strong marriage is built upon putting your spouse first. Loving them enough to not be concerned with what you get in return is a foundation of true marital connection and growth. So how do we do that? What's the kind of love that we're talking about in Scripture here, Jonathan? Agapio and agape love, to love, affection, or benevolence. And Rick, selfless love keeps things when everything else fails. Selfless love is the love that Jesus loved, loved us all with. What did Jesus get for loving the Pharisees? Nothing. <laughs> right. But he loved them anyway, so, so much so that he died for them. That's right. That's the kind of love this is, and that's what we're talking about. First Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep fervent in love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, this benevolence, this selfless giving love, fervent, have it boiling over inside of you because it covers a multitude of sins, because you're giving and you're giving because that's what we're taught to do. Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, you know, the question at the beginning of the segment, Jonathan, was a simple question. How can you love your spouse even when you don't love your spouse? So when you don't feel like you love your spouse, you don't feel like you have that bond anymore, you can love them this way, with benevolence, with giving and not worrying about receiving. And the reason I know you can do this, because Jesus teaches us you should have this love for your enemies. So if you can love your enemy this way, we can certainly love our spouse this way, even if we don't feel in love with them at the moment. This is huge. We've got to grab hold of this and realize the benefit here. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is that kind of love. It's not saying husbands be affectionate toward your wife. It's saying love them the way Christ loved us. What did we give to Jesus? <laughs> Nothing. Okay. <laughs> he gave it all. <laughs> and that's the kind of love that we can have even when we don't feel like we're in love. This is important if you want to be able to be faithful to that covenant in spite of very serious odds. And again, the original marriage proclamation absolutely implies this selfless kind of love. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined or cling or adhere to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, we, we touched on that in the last segment, but Jonathan, it doesn't say, um, you know, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall be head over heels in love with his wife. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It but doesn't. it probably would start out that way. <laughs> it, it probably would. But the point is, if that wanes for one reason or another, it doesn't change the covenant. 
It doesn't change what makes it go. And for those of us who are Christians and we take the covenant of marriage this seriously, and you're having trouble, focus on this piece to begin with, this selfless love to say, if Jesus teaches me to love my enemies, I can certainly love my spouse this way, even if I don't feel in love. So let's wrap this piece up, challenging our challenges. Having benevolent love not only keeps the door open, it solidifies your efforts to continue contributing to a relationship that seems to have lost its attractiveness. And Rick, you know, we need to keep in line with our covenant and marriage. It's important to be faithful to what we promised. Yeah, and really that's the bottom line. The promise has as much power in this as everything else. We cannot forget that part of the equation. It's way, way too important. What we're being told is to stay the course when we're deeply challenged. That is what Jesus did. Practically speaking, what do we do when we find out there's another darker side to our spouse? Other podcasts may have show notes, but we have the ultimate bonus episode show notes that simply go way beyond and are much more comprehensive. Look for the CQ Rewind show notes tab on our episode pages. And a big thank you to our Christian Questions volunteer team for releasing this exclusive content every week on ChristianQuestions.com. For many of us, this is a really shocking and often often frightening revelation. The first thing to say here is this, and listen carefully, please. If you are in an abusive situation, please have the courage to remove yourself and children and get help. People who abuse need help, and the only way they will get it is by being confronted with the reality of their actions. And Rick, I get it. Physical abuse can be life-threatening. And you're absolutely right. Get out. But what about mental abuse? If it is so poisonous, are we justified in leaving that situation? See, Jonathan, that, that is a lot harder to define. But the, answer, the short answer is yes. However, let us not take that as an excuse to take an easy road out, to say, well, you know, my husband is insulting or my wife uh, doesn't appreciate me, and that's mental abuse. Well, let's be careful with that, okay? You know, and, and just, just to, to illustrate, there was another story that another Christian woman wrote in to, to me about her, her marriage before she was actually, she was, had given her life to Jesus uh, and in consecration, and her experience was horrific. So much so, I don't want to talk about it. Okay, but it was physically abusive. And she was in, in the mindset that, well, I'm supposed to stay married, so I'm supposed to stay in it. You know, when somebody abuses someone else, and folks, please listen carefully to this, they, there's something broken. And if you love them, if you want to honor the covenant, you will want what's best for them. Yes? Absolutely. What's best for them is getting help. Sometimes what's best for them is intervention. Sometimes it's the law. Sometimes it's counseling. Whatever it is, they need help. Do not walk away from that. People stay in abusive relationships. And you know what happens to children who are raised in those relationships? 
They become abusers. So don't do that. Don't do that. It's hard. Get help. Find somebody you, that will support you. Make sure you have a plan. But please, be careful and, and, and protect yourself and children when necessary. So the mental abuse thing, Jonathan, yes, if it's really truly that, sure. But you have to go through an awful lot to get to the point where, where, it's, where it's, it's, it's breaking you like that. And, and that's part of what we're going to be working on is trying to put the pieces together when we get to that. Let's go to another quote, but thank you for that question for clarifying this. Another quote by Henry David Thoreau about the, the, the quiet desperation. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. So this is interesting because resignation is confirmed to be desperation. And, you know, resigning, you got to think about that because that's what happens when things get hard sometimes. We just resign. So when we don't feel loved, it's easy to resign, to fall into the thought pattern of it's over or, well, this is the biggest mistake in my life or what did I do to deserve this or uh, I've had enough. What about this one, Rick? I just resign myself to the fact this isn't working. And when we do that, we quit. And that is not what this is about. Resignation brings retreat. Retreat brings a shut-down heart, which makes effort a thing of the past. If we're Christians and we're having a marriage relationship that is, that is broken like this, we need to be able to fight for the covenant and by fighting for that, we fight for that relationship with our spouse. And who knows if it can be healed. Maybe it can't. But does it mean you don't fight? No. Because you made the covenant before God. So, it's interesting, Jonathan, in Scripture, a lack of family love. Remember we were talking about that in the last segment. Yes. Okay, a lack of family love is twice cited as a sign of the depth of sin, that's in Romans, and as a sign of the end times in 2 Timothy. Let's look at those two scriptures, Rome, scriptures Romans 1, 28 and 31. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, without understanding, and that Greek word means stubborn, <laughs> untrustworthy, Rick, that word means covenant breaker, unloving. That means lacking that love of family. Unmerciful means merciless, which that's the only time that word is found in the New Testament. That's amazing, though. That word untrustworthy means covenant breaker. Yes. And it comes right before unloving, lack, uh, uh, lack of, lacking love of family. So you can see how those two are just fitting together. We don't want to break that sacred covenant, even if it's not working out. We owe that covenant to God as followers of Jesus. Okay, we do, and we want to keep it. You know, Jesus was very specific, and we're not going to get into this in, in, in detail, but Jesus says, yes, there is a, a reason for divorce, and it's fornication. Okay, but he doesn't say it's, it's if you don't feel like you love your spouse anymore or um, they say ni not nice things to you. It doesn't mean you have to stay with them if they're abusive, but you work with the covenant. That's the thing, and that's what we want to strive for. And Jonathan, it's hard. It is hard, Rick. But it's worth it because it's a, it, marriage is a covenant of God. Do not underestimate its power and sanctity. 
the this idea of being lacking love of family is a sign of the end times in Second Timothy chapter three verses one to three. But realize this: that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, and brutal. So there's a lot more in those verses, but we're trying to condense it down. You know, you know, look look around you carefully and see the many ways that our generations today have subtly fulfilled these prophetic statements. How often do we get divorced for irreconcilable differences? Am I letting my spouse slip out of family love because I'm too busy or too stressed? You know, sometimes we are the cause of our own most serious problems. We have to realize our, our contribution to those. As a matter of fact, Jonathan, the next two weeks of podcasts, we're going to be talking about how do I avoid burnout and mm, and good. burnout has a lot to do with marriage success and marriage failure. So good folks, point. you want to stay with us for the next next 2 weeks on those. So, let's get back to the story from this Christian woman, true story about her struggling through this marriage that's just not working. And and I want to add another detail that I didn't add at the beginning. You know, when she got married, she had not yet really fully given her life to Christ. You know, she did afterwards and she has grown into uh, being a, a very, very, very dedicated, sincerely dedicated Christian. And so, but she's in this relationship, and she's determined to do what she can to uphold the covenant. So here, and our dear friend and sister Julie is going to be the voice that you hear. This is not her story, but she's reading it for us. Um, she's going to be describing some strategies that this Christian woman began to uncover as she's searching for ways to, to be positive about a very difficult experience. I was always anxious when he was about to come home or when he was in a bad mood. I didn't feel like I was walking on eggshells. I felt I was walking in a minefield. But I realized I couldn't control how someone else acted or what they said, but I could control how it affected me. So here are some strategies I use in my marriage. As I do things for my family, whether cleaning the house or cooking meals or whatever, I tried not to resent that what I do was not only not appreciated, but often criticized. So I think of Colossians 3, 23 to 24. It says, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. I spend time studying the Bible, listening to sermons from my church, listening to Christian questions. I've gone to a marriage counselor. With God's leading, I got bits of help everywhere I looked. Instead of thinking, what does God want from me? I think, what does God want for me? Learning humility is a Christ-like characteristic, and that's our goal. We want to rid ourselves of pride. So I try to reframe my thinking from, I have to take out the garbage. Instead, I think, I get to take care of my family. And I also breathe deeply when I'm in an uncomfortable situation. I learned practical ways of speaking to someone who is screaming at you, including not reacting too quickly and speaking slowly and calmly, repeating back to him what he said to give him a chance to consider it. And my therapist told me to actually make the motion of slamming and locking a door or closing and locking a window to give myself a visual and real feeling of blocking his negativity from me, not letting it in. Jonathan, there's a lot of inspiring things about this. The fact that oh, she, big time. she she sought help, she looked for it in all kinds of different ways because she had decided that I'm going to 
be contributory to this very difficult situation, contributory in a positive way to try to, to mend it as best as she could. And, and, and she's describing things that are hard. If somebody's angry at you to take a deep breath and to calmly repeat back to them what they're saying, that takes guts, that takes oh, courage, does. that takes patience, that takes perseverance. So these are hard things, but these are small ways. And you know, at the beginning, they look like they're really incredibly large, but they're steps that you can take to help to calm a volatile situation. There's nothing worse than adding fuel to a fire when the fire isn't supposed to be there. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Nothing good comes from that. <laughs> no, that's for sure. And, you know, we need to be very, very careful about that. So let's go back to that Colossians scripture she talked about. And here's the theme we want to focus on as we go through the rest of this segment. Decide, like this Christian woman did, decide that desperation is not your destiny. Decide desperation is not your destiny act in love. And when we say act in love, we mean that higher agape love, the kind Jesus said we should even have for our enemies. So Jonathan, let's reread Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's whom you serve. You respect and honor your spouse because you serve and honor God through Christ. And I love what she said, what does God want for me? I get to take care of my family. She was giving practical responses. And and that's, Rick, a paradigm shift in your thinking. You take a difficult circumstance and make it a blessing. And that takes courage, Rick. Instead of resigning, that takes courage. And we're going to get into that in in the next segment. So here's the thing. When we resign, we let anger or resentment fester. That's what happens when we resign, okay? And you got to ask the question, is this what God, what God wants for me? Because she just said, I'm trying to understand what God wants for me. Does he want us to have anger and, and, and resentment festering? I don't think so. Ephesians 4, 25 to 27. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So instead of fighting your environment, work with and work through it. You know, that has become a catchphrase of mine in a lot of circumstances. Don't fight the environment. Work with and through the environment so you can get what you need from the environment. And again, we're getting into that in the next segment. The bottom line here is decide that desperation is not your destiny. Folks, you can decide that if you're in this kind of situation. Act in that selfless, benevolent love that Jesus taught us. When we resign, Jonathan, we hold grudges and complain. you got to ask yourself the question, is this what God wants for me? I don't think so. Matter of fact, I know so. Uh, Proverbs 19, 11, and 13. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. A foolish man is destructive to his father, and the contentious of a wife are a constant dripping. So, you know, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger. This is way the way we want to be. We don't want to hold grudges. We don't want to complain. What does God want for us? He doesn't want us to be desperate. He wants us to stand for those things which are righteous. How do you do that? You decide to, to, to get there. You first have to decide that desperation is not your destiny. 
act in selfless love. And instead of having this view of this laser beam of experience, you take a wider view, you back up and you see the bigger world around you so that it doesn't overwhelm you and take away your energy, your all. Yeah, that's that's a really, really good point. We get so stuck in the moment, we don't see what's happening around us. And by being able to take a breath, like she suggested to us, you miss the bigger picture. And in the bigger picture is great potential blessing if we're willing to look for it. And again, we're going to get into that just in, a, in another couple of minutes. So challenging our challenges, Jonathan, as we wrap up this segment. Desperation and resignation are convenient tools of the adversary. They work well because they are natural emotions and reactions. Love instead, honor God. Natural emotions and reactions are easy. To honor God, not necessarily so easy. But that's what we strive for. And this is where things get serious. This is where we have the opportunity to decide how important Jesus is to us. What should we do if we feel too tired to fight? How do we keep our thoughts and actions righteous? Our YouTube channel has a lot going on. Go to ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Featuring new releases every week. Check out our playlists like CQ Kids, Moments That Matter, and CQ Bible 101. Plus, we have even more new series content planned to roll out soon. So stay tuned at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. You know, we've all been down this road of overwhelming odds and insurmountable potential losses. One of the most important courses of action to take is finding our deepest core motivations. In a challenged marriage, when the circumstances show brokenness, our resolve should be to take small steps. Everything starts with small steps. That's another catchphrase of mine in life, Jonathan. Small steps. Make progress. Do something small to change things. Another quote from Henry David Thoreau. Never look back unless you're planning to go that way. <laughs> that is very powerful. I was, I was talking with someone who's having some specific issues uh, just the other day, and I mentioned that quote, and the response was, whoa, I got to write that down. <laughs> because <laughs> that's what we end up, we end up rehearsing the past again and again and again. And what it does is it takes us right out of the present and robs us of our future because we put the past and we make it what we're looking towards. That's not the way to get there. Honoring God is a different way. So we're going to introduce four small steps in this segment. First step, decide on your direction. That's simple. Decide on your direction. Find the deepest why of your life and manage your brokenness through it. What is your deepest, strongest why? What makes you tick? Find that and manage your brokenness through that. And, uh, and I'll give you a hint. The deepest, strongest why in my life is in this next scripture, Matthew six thirty three. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Every time I get myself into a bind, I try to think of, now I don't always do it, but I try to think of this scripture because it's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if I put God first and his righteousness and his ways before everything else, every, all the other difficulties seem to find a pathway. But that's, that's find your deepest why and attack your issues through that. 
And Jonathan, when we do that, here's something that we will begin to notice. And folks, this may sound odd, but this is so true. Chaos creates clarity. Really? (laughs) What? (laughs) Well, okay. Let's go through that. It is in the turmoil of our broken experiences that our true needs and direction appear if we look for them. This became plain to me in, in an experience with someone very close to me going through some really hard things. Uh, and it was with one of her children. And we were talking about it, and it occurred to me that because of the chaos of the child's actions and reactions, there was a clarity that was emerging because it was showing the mom what to do, how to do it, what to look for, how to respond. So in the middle of what looks like the worst, you can actually, if you look, find the pieces of truth to piece together a plan of attack. Chaos can create clarity. That's if we decide to let it create clarity. And, and Jonathan, that's always a difficult challenge. And so, so often we just don't even think that that's possible. We just say, you know, you know, look at this, look at this mess. But instead of saying, look at this mess, maybe we should ask, what can I learn? What has revealed itself? Where can we go? And I like the Old Testament word, sila, pause yes. and consider. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's go back to this Christian woman's experience. Um, and she says something at the end, and I'm going to mention it now. She says to make a sandwich. And this is a very important tool, a sandwich. So stay with us. Her story as read by Julie, our dear friend and a co-Christian question conspirator <laughs> who works with us on so many things. It's not her story, but she's reading it for us. Here are a few more strategies. I make more of an effort to help others be kind and do more in service to the Lord. It helps me count my blessings rather than think about the negative. Counseling with Rick showed me ways I could handle my situation in a God-honoring way. I try to cherish my husband. That one's still a work in progress for me, but I'm thankful for my husband, and I'm especially thankful for all the experiences I've had because ultimately they brought me closer to God, closer to my brethren, and closer to my family. If I had not gone through these experiences, I may still be lukewarm about my commitment to God. Listening to CQ episode number 947, Why Are We So Stressed, gave me different tips for dealing with stress. And listening to episode 1092, How Do You Deal With Toxic People in Your Life? Wow, before that, I had always just absorbed all the negative comments. I could physically feel them sinking into me. But I learned to calmly state my opinion or stand up for myself or another person being criticized. One great tip was to make a sandwich when stating my opinion, saying something positive or understanding about the other person before and after stating my view. You know, I, I want to I wanna make a comment on one thing she said. She said, you know, counseling with Rick. I am not a counselor, okay? I don't have a license to be found anywhere in such an area. <laughs> but um, I do a lot of listening and just try to feed back scripturally-based tools. That's what I do. And that I'm blessed with that. And uh, with this particular individual, uh, we've been able to just watch her, I've been able to watch her work and grow through this really difficult experience. And the idea of making a sandwich, uh, dealing with the hard, hard part by putting something good before it and after it. You make a sandwich and that way it gets heard. And it's really made a difference. It's a simple little thing, but it's really made a difference in her in her life. So just... 
there's so many things you can do. And look, maybe it's not going to fix her marriage, but what it does is it fixes her attitude toward her covenant and her spouse, and that is blessed of God. And isn't that the best that we can hope for? Amen. Okay. So the first point was decide on your direction. Chaos creates clarity. The second point is what? Realize the great challenge of stopping what starts out as what seems to be a little thing. Okay. A lot of times things start out to seem to be little things and we don't stop them because we're frustrated and we're rationalizing and we're resigning and all of that. And little things can grow into bigger things. So realize there's a great challenge in stopping what seems like a little thing but can grow into something horrendous. And we're going to use a horrendous example, Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus is saying, don't put yourself in the position where you can even think about, thinking about an action like that. He's saying, stop it at its origin. Stop it in the thought process. This is huge. Once something takes evil root in our heart, it can only produce a poisonous plant. And just realize that if we allow ourselves to go down that road by rationalizing and by resigning, it's only trouble. Verse 29 and 30. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. That sounds pretty dramatic. That is not literal. Let's make sure we understand that. That's the subject for another day, but not even close to literal. What it's saying is take what you see and take what you do and do not allow yourself to look upon or do things that are not God-honoring. That's really the bottom line. How determined am I to hate the point, to the point of severing that which is an evil temptation in my life? Jonathan, a lot of times we like to just put it away, but we don't sever it. That's what Mm. Jesus is saying. Sever the evil temptations. So this challenge of stopping what starts out as something little, we go to that chaos creates clarity. Well, clarity... Once we can see, it gives birth to courage, to action. Once the fog of your broken marriage's chaos is lifted, courage is activated, for we now know what the battle is about and why we need to fight it. And so, see, lifting the fog isn't solving the problem. Lifting the fog is being able to see so you can take courage to take action to solve the problem. Well, Rick, I I have a recipe here for us. A recipe to cope with your spouse is for you to handle you in a godly manner. (laughs) There you go. We spend all of our time trying to handle them. How do I handle them? Well, how how should I handle me in a godly manner? And handling them might actually take care of itself. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) So thanks for that. Good recipe. Okay, so we've got these small steps. The first, decide on your direction. The second, the challenge of stopping things that may start out as small. What's the third small step here? Accept that you really do have a choice and make it. This is so important. You do have a choice, and then you just need to make it. We can't serve our families, and therefore God, and serve the world as well. And that's the theme of uh, Luke chapter 16. We're going to read verses 10 and then jump to verse 13. He who is faithful in very little things is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. No servant can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And Rick, I'd like to end it this way and with our subject here. We cannot serve God or self. Yeah, God and self serving the two of them just don't work together. It just it just doesn't. So we have to decide, except that you really have a choice and make the choice. So decide your direction. What direction do you want to go? Realize the challenge of the little things and then accept that you really do have a choice. And this brings us to courage, because remember the clarity gave birth to courage to say, okay, I can see I, 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 that I need to act, and I, and I think I can. Courage is proven in action. To positively contribute to a marriage that is broken takes courageous effort. Small steps towards honoring your covenant and spouse are actually heroic actions. You know the old Nike thing, just do it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's something to be said about just doing it in relation to being godly, being honorable, being respectful, uh, building another up, even if they're not building you up, for the sake of the covenant. And sometimes that can change the marriage. I've, no, I've known that to happen in the past, and I've known it not to happen in the past. But in every case, Jonathan, the individual who did that was blessed. Nice. Because they're looking to serve God through that covenant. So we've got these three steps. Decide that you, the direction you're going to take. Realize the challenge of little things. Accept that you have a choice and just make it. And now the fourth point is live your faith even in the context of brokenness. Live your faith. Matthew 7, 24 and 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Rick, I was thinking of um, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 10 through 14, and we're going to have that in the bonus material. But it, it basically, the concept is, if you're present, that makes the family better. And what I mean by that is uh, sanctification in, in verse 14. For the, un, uh, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband, and your children also are counted as holy in God's sight. So you're it, being there and letting them see the love of Christ pouring out of you is giving them a standing and being a blessing to them at this moment, even if it's hard. And it's being a blessing to them before God. It's not just being nice to them and everybody feels better. This is a before God standard that you're talking about in that verse. It's very important to realize that we have a cleansing effect on those around us, an effect that makes it more acceptable for them to be before God. That's a beautiful thing. But Jonathan, if we're not going to act in a Christ-like manner, how can we be sanctifying someone else? We're, we won't be. And that's the point. Be present, like you said, in that sanctifying manner. So what this brings us to is this living of our faith. Our actions will find a victory. This, the str the stronger our actions towards righteously contributing to a broken marriage, the closer we come to victory. What we find is that victory is in the effort, not the result. 
That is so important. Victory is in the effort. It's not the result. We can't manage the result. You said, you know, manage you, okay? That's right. We can manage us. We can manage the effort. We can manage honoring the covenant and honoring our spouse, even if it's not reciprocal, because that's what we're trying to do. If it's abusive, we've already mentioned that. But when, it, when it's something that can be worked with, work with it. Challenging our challenges, Jonathan, what's, what's next? Chaos is a key to God-honoring contribution. Let it teach you. So say when chaos comes, you embrace it and say, I love chaos. No, you're not going to do that. <laughs> Nobody's going to do that. But what we can do is look at the chaos and say, what can I learn and how can I honor God by applying what I learn from this chaos? And in a marriage, it's no different. It's odd to think that in the midst of chaotic events that break things apart, there lies a pathway to growth. Christians are supposed to be accepting. What's the difference between acceptance and resignation? It's been a privilege and exciting interacting with our listeners all over the world. Reach out to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com. In addition to always continuing the conversation on our website, in social media, and our YouTube channel. Learn more about becoming a Christian Questions Ambassador. There are several impactful ways you can help us continue to spread the gospel message. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Support CQ in the top navigation menu. Join our incredible team of volunteers and find out more. Now back to Rick and Jonathan. You know, it's far too easy to fall into the trap of rationalizing what God would have us to do. When faced with the brokenness of one's marriage, rationalizing a course of action or rationalizing complete inaction often, become, uh, often comes because we feel like we don't have a choice. To follow this feeling is a big mistake. And folks, this really is. If you are in a difficult situation in a marriage like this, you've got to get yourself focused on, am I going to act based on how I feel, or am I going to act based on what is righteous in relation to this covenant and to being godly? We want to pursue acceptance, not resignation. There is a big difference between the two. Let's start with Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, all things work together for good to those that love God. So that means we can just sit back and say, well, God's going to work it out for us. No, he's saying, <laughs> I'm going to give you experiences to test you so that you can prove your Christ-likeness through them. Exactly, exactly. So it's not about resigning. Here, let's lay out the difference. Resignation is this. To live with resignation is to cease your efforts. It's like the elephant who's tied to a small stake in the ground. Resignation feigns to know the boundaries and to obediently embrace them. In reality, all you are doing is giving up hope and giving up growth. And Rick, even if your spouse isn't coming around? Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't resign. You don't resign. You don't resign. It's a covenant of God. You don't resign. You work hard. You just work. What's acceptance, Jonathan? Let's go through that. To live with acceptance is truly embracing the limitations before you and to focus on having been become tools or devices of growth. Acceptance is not concerned with things being in perfect order to move forward. Rather, it is concerned with persistence needed 
to move forward. So acceptance is saying, okay, I've got this circumstance and it stinks. I don't like it. It's not comfortable. But it's saying I'm going to use the circumstance, like you said before, your, your environment, work with it work, so you can work through it rather than fight it. That's what acceptance is. It's deciding whatever it is I'm going to use to try and move forward. Big difference between acceptance and resignation. Big difference. Let's get to our final soundbite from the story of this Christian woman who was in a very, very difficult marriage situation, as read by our dear friend and sister, Julie. This is not Julie's story, but she is sharing it with us on behalf of this individual Christian woman. This is not how I ever imagined my marriage would be, but I wholeheartedly believe and accept that God's thoughts and ways are higher and much better than mine. I can see his hand working in my life, and for that I am beyond grateful that he would even consider me, care for me, trust me to do work in his name, and bless me, which he has done beyond measure. I have stopped resisting so much when change or difficulty comes my way. I have a moment when I think, wait, what's happening? But then I think, how is God wanting me to grow through this? What can I do here to honor God? And to get to that point, Jonathan, is a remarkable place to go. Amen. Takes work, takes effort, takes standing up and falling down, takes failure, takes takes forgiveness, but you can get there. I'm so thankful that she had the vulnerability to share her story and was willing to do that because, wow, it's encouraging, it's strengthening to me, and I know it's going to help. So many others. Yeah, and and you know, I've been blessed to to essentially watch this story unfold. And I can tell you it's in thoroughly inspirational to see the step by step progress. She's not done yet. She's got lots of work to do. The end remains to be seen, but she is working towards that end. One more quote. This is not uh, Henry David Thoreau, this is Aristotle. I count him braver who overcomes his desires than who who conquers his enemies, for the hardest victory is over self. And that let us always remember, the hardest victory is over self. We've got to manage ourselves. In our battle to overcome resignation, we know men and women are wired differently, okay? This is one of those come-to-Jesus moments we're going to have to have, Jonathan. This is going to be hard on us as men. <laughs> okay. All right, all right. But, but here it comes, okay? <laughs> women in general, and this is in general, are clearly more intuitive and more readily able to understand love, okay? They just are. You're right. <laughs> as a result, we're shown different roles in Scripture, and I think it's an appropriate thing once you understand it this way. Ephesians 5, 21 to 24 and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Okay, be subject to one another under Christ. That's the context here. Now let's continue. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Okay, so wives, be subject to your husbands, husbands head of the wife. You know, that's the way it is. I mean, it sounds like this is a one of those heavy-duty commands here. And then what about verse 24? But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now that sounds like a recipe for unfair treatment, rebellion, and even lawsuits. <laughs> it does. Uh, it, let's finish the context, right? <laughs> okay. All right. And, and that's always the key, isn't it? It is. The key is always finish the context, okay? You have this, this, this seeming hard, hard command. But now here's the other side of this. Husbands are clearly taught to love their wives 
as a Christian responsibility. And listen to how this is framed. And we're in, still in Ephesians chapter 5. Now we're going to look at verses 25 through 31. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Okay, so husbands love. There's that benevolent giving without thought of receiving love, your wives, just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And Jonathan, there is no better example for us as men than to look at Jesus and his sacrifice and his giving without receiving and to say, that is the standard by which I must love my wife. And that is a tall order, but that's what is required, Rick. Yes. And the interesting thing is the apostle doesn't just stop there. He already said it like two or three times. But no, he has to say it more. Verses 28 to 31. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, you know, the apostle, he's repeating this again and again and again in, in, in different ways each time. The, the point here is that the key to truly valuing your spouse is in the concept of cherishing. You know, and that Christian woman whose story we were listening to, she mentioned that, you know, I'm working on cherishing my husband. It's a hard thing, but I'm working on it. To cherish means to, 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 to have this tender love, to foster with tender care, to see as, as something just incredibly valuable. You cherish those things that are most valuable. Jonathan, as men, that's what we're supposed to do to our wives. That's right. And uh, it's not natural. Uh, we have to work on it and focus on it and continue to perform it uh, because— Selfless love cherishes, and we've got to keep it before us. You know, our spouses, if they aren't shown appreciation and value, the whole environment goes downhill. Yeah. I mean, how much do we want to be appreciated for what we contribute? It's, it's huge. So we want to, it's this give and take of thank you. I love you. Thanks for helping me here. Thanks for doing that. Can you help me here? It's that give and take. You know, and, and the cherishing, you're right. If, if we don't have that as a, as a basis, and again, this is that, 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 that earthly, physical bond, I'm with you, you're with me, we're together in whatever it is that we, we do, but to make sure that your spouse understands you feel that way about them, you not just feel that way about them, but you see them in that way. Your actions reflect them being in that role with you, you're, that, that they, they, they can see that your thoughts are along those lines. It can melt a lot of the ice. Maybe it, it may not solve the problem, but it melts a lot of the ice. And what it does for us is it helps us to see things much more clearly. So let's look at the observations from these previous verses, uh, because I think it's kind of fascinating how, it's, how it ends up lining up. What's the first observation? Women, love and be subject. Okay. Love and be subject. Second observation. 
women and men be subject to each other. Yeah, now that actually came first, but I wanted to put it second because here's the idea. You've got this thing, women love and be subject, and women and men love and be subject to, to others. The other 42 observations, <laughs> not 42, but you know what I mean, are all about men. men. Yeah, men, like, here's men. what you need to learn, guys. What are they? Men, love and give yourself up for her. Give yourself up for her. What else? Men, love and care for her as your own body. Okay, she is that important. What else? Men, your love for her becomes your way of self-preservation. Think about that. Your love for her becomes your way of self-preservation. That's how powerful this relationship needs to be. Men, cherish her. And we already touched on that in the last one. Men, leave all other ties for her sake. If we, as men, can begin to get our heads and hearts around these things... Many of the challenges in our marriages will begin to right themselves. Why? Because we are acting in a way that is God honoring, that is spouse honoring, and that is covenant honoring. That's why. Jonathan, it's pretty simple. We have the power to make our marriage better, even if it's not going great at this moment. And that's a great power to have by God's grace. And I'm thankful Paul reminds us over and over and over again as men to do the right things in so many different ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you're right, you're right. And, and it's, it, it's, it's kind of humorous in one way, but it's deadly serious in another way that that's this right. is, I'm telling you this many times in many ways so you get the point. So, folks, look, instead of resigning to our fate, what we think, and I'm going to put the word fate in air quotes, Instead of resigning to our fate, did you see the air quotes? <laughs> what if we accepted the circumstances as God permitted and apply the fruit of the Spirit to those circumstances? Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Look at those things in relation to your marriage. Whether your marriage is in great shape or in lousy shape, look at those things in relation to that marriage and that covenant and see what can change. Our final challenging of our challenges, Jonathan. Accepting your marriage is not perfect and that what you thought would be blissful may end up difficult is a primary step in overcoming the trial. Faithfulness to the covenant and agape love towards your spouse speaks volumes. That is really what we need to be focusing on here. We need to understand unequivocally that we have a choice not to run and hide, but to run towards the issue and work and pray and, and, and put out the effort and be the example and try to put on Christ at every turn and lift ourselves higher and be more understanding so that we can take a really bad situation and make it better. And folks, look, it's not about changing your spouse. It's about changing you. It's about honoring God, honoring the covenant, and honoring your spouse because they're part of that covenant. What can God do with that? I don't know. But you've got much, a much better chance at success in the long run if we follow that pattern rather than resigning. Think about it. Folks, listen. 
We really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please, rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, again, I want to remind you, coming up next week, part one, how do I avoid burnout? And this and the marriage subject are just so closely tied. Talk to you next week. <music>